Welcome to Public Intellectual. In this episode, I sit down with the writer and cultural critic Laura Kipnis to discuss her new book, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus, and the Misinterpretations of Her Newest Ideas. I'm speaking with Laura Kipnis, the feminist writer and also my friend. Uh, so just to warn you, it might be a little bit more casual than usual, but she's written a new book, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus, and it has had an interesting effect on the world, which is kind of how I'd like to start the conversation. Not so much about how the book came to be, but what it's become out in the world recently because I noticed you know when you write a book about feminism you kind of think oh so this is going to be talked about by feminists and instead somehow this book has been talked about more by the right than by the left and so I wanted to ask you is it disappointing to have a response like that hi Jessa so hi, nice Laura. to be with you um <laughs> I have been somewhat surprised about, I mean, I wouldn't say there's been no response by feminists because there have been some um, some nice reviews and some, some feminist sites and some of, you know, the people who have written about it have certainly been feminists or would call themselves feminists. But yes, I've been startled and befuddled and consternated by the attention on the right. And I, I mean, it's more the libertarian right. So it's not your... Um, Christian conservatives so much as it is people like Reason, who I, you know, find I have things in common with. Um, but also, I've been getting invites to speak at places like the Cato Institute, where you start looking up their politics and find, uh, I'm not sure if this is true so much of Cato, but some of these institutes, like they're against child labor laws and stuff like that. So, so I've been trying to... <laughs> you know, wend my way carefully through some of these invites. And what is your common ground with, let's say, the libertarian movement? Do you find that you can have a conversation or do you find that your your work is being sort of um, co-opted by these groups? Well, I'd like to think not so much co-opted as, you know, the issues that I raise. I mean, I'm you know, a left-wing feminist who found myself using terms like federal overreach to talk about Title IX. And, you know, the book has a lot to do with Title IX, um, which is federal. It's not exactly legislation, but it is a set of rules foisted on all of higher education by the Obama Department of Education, who sort of made up laws without passing them through the, you know, usual procedures to, to, to make a law. And, you know, what I found out by having been brought up on Title IX charges myself is that there's this vast amount of um, false accusation, over-accusation, um, and, and no oversight. So to the extent that these libertarian types um, are sort of anti-regulatory, and to the extent that I find myself against at least this set of, of government regulations, though, you know, in other ways, I'm like your, your basic big government leftist or left liberal, um, you know, there are things that, that, that we have in, in common. And some of the groups that have taken up the cause of trying to dismantle or pro 
put curbs on on Title IX. Um, groups like Fire, uh, which is I think, boy, I can't. I would have to try. I would have to look up what the acronym stands for. But it's something about individual rights, freedom, and individual rights in education, something like that. You know, they take funding from places that us on the left are not happy about, like the Koch Foundation. Um, but yeah, so you do end up with this this you know strange bedfellows problem to, to coin a fresh phrase. Has there been enough discussion on the left about this sort of uh, overreach of Title IX? I mean, obviously not because it's not, um, because the system is still in place. But when you were sort of investigating the Title IX process, is there a kind of um, conversation happening about how dangerous this is that's maybe not as public as... Uh, as your book or Campus Rape Frenzy, but that book was much um, came from a much different angle, which is the kind of traditional right angle into this conversation, which is um, women are loony, kind of uh, that supporting the idea that women are somehow hysterical uh, in their sexual responses. Well, first of all, the Campus Rape Frenzy book was an unfortunately titled book which was not actually written by right-wing guys. The guys are liberals. They both say they voted for Obama, but they couldn't find a publisher aside from a conservative press, which sort of goes to answer your previous question about where's the conversation happening. And no, I don't think it's happening among liberals or you know feminists because there's this great fear of seeming to question accusers or, you know, to use the more popular term, survivors' stories about sexual assault. So that's what's off, you know, just you can't do. And it is what I sort of, you know, ventured to do in this book, not always to uh, popular acclaim. And I think, you know, you have to be able to make distinctions, I think, um, between saying, on the one hand, all survivors must be believed, and, you know, saying uh, there's no problem with sexual assault on campus. So I think in the end, you actually have to take up these cases individually, as they did in the book, and uh, if there's any question about them, and I think a lot of them are questionable, really look at uh, the facts and the accusations and the assertions and the, and the defenses. But the problem with doing that and why it's not being done is all of this is confidential. So until these cases hit the civil courts, and more and more of them are hitting courts because um, particularly accused young men, college, undergrads, are bringing suits against their schools. But I should say you have to be more or less like a rich kid to do that mm -hmm. because to bring a suit costs usually upwards of a hundred grand and up to a million if it goes to a, a trial from I've heard this from uh, you know uh, lawyers working in the in the area not much of this is known so there's not discussion because the the details aren't known and also because it looks like a book like the campus rape frenzy comes from the right you know it wasn't it was a book that I thought was it had a lot of good research in it, particularly because the research, as I say, is difficult to do. But yeah, it was possibly slanted somewhat toward the side of the accused and somewhat neglected maybe the side of the accuser. 
And would you have written about, or would you have been interested in writing about the Title IX process had you not been sort of dragged into it by your hair? Oh, God. I didn't have a clue what Title IX was when I was, you know, as you dragged in, as you put it. Um, I got this letter saying I've been brought up on Title IX complaints. And I, you know, like everyone thought it had something to do with women's funding for women's sports. You know, I, I didn't know. And, you know, it's been a learning process to say the least so I you know learned something about it from from my own case but not very much really because a lot of it is just very opaque you know you don't know what's going on you don't know the the rules or how things are going to be decided and it was only after I wrote about it and went public and started hearing about all these other people's cases that I started to see what the patterns were and you know, really what the, the problems were, which is lack of due process. So here I sound like a big liberal using words like lack of due process, but also because of the fact that nobody can talk about this, I start being interested in, you know, traditional liberal issues like free speech, which was not something that I ever thought about. You know, I thought, like everyone else, that as a professor, particularly, you know, at a big research university and as an American, sorry to say that, you know, unpopular word, but, you know, I thought, oh, well, we all have free speech. But no, actually, we don't. And even at this moment, I'm under constraints about what I can say. Mm -hmm. And we should mention the sort of context, which is you were brought up on Title IX charges for creating a... Um, What's the, what was the phrasing of it? Well, it was unclear. I guess it was a hostile environment or a chilling effect, uh, among other things. But, um, you know, I never got the complaints in writing because of the due process problem. So, you know, it was just my notes on what I was charged with that I, you know, am going by. But it was for writing an essay. So it wasn't yeah. for something you were doing on campus. It was for writing and publishing an essay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't harass or assault anyone. Uh, and yeah. Um, which is why I think, so the right has taken up this position, this strange position suddenly as being the sort of uh, protectors of free speech. And so you're being sort of... Um, uh, brought into it from that angle with a lot of these sort of libertarian uh, sites. Um, but do you feel like that's that's a genuine expression of the right? Like, do you really think that they're um, interested in free speech? Or is it just that their speech is suddenly the one that's under attack at the moment? I suppose, you know, if you want to suspect them of nefarious motives, it has something to do with trying to uh, bring down what they think of as this PC culture on campus. And, you know, but it is also true that a lot of the restrictions on speech are coming from what you'd think of as the left, you know, campus activists. I mean, I myself have really started to rethink or try to rethink some of these left-right distinctions because I'm not so sure that the campus activism of the moment or the campus feminism of the moment really has anything to do with what I think of as the left. I mean, I actually think there are these authoritarian kind of impulses. Uh, I mean, you know, like authoritarianism doesn't have a left or a right valence. There are left-wing authoritarians and right-wing authoritarians. Mm. And so on the left, I think you've got... Um, both in terms of the activists and uh, the administration, um, authoritarian tendencies, 
which you only find out about when you confront them, you know. And I mean, as I sort of at first accidentally did and now I guess more purposefully I'm doing. Because you had an appearance at Wellesley, right? And that was a very controversial thing because the professors uh, sent an email around, six professors or something like that, sent an email around after saying that their students should be protected from speakers like you. So A, what did you say to the students? Um, and uh, how do you um, argue against something like that? Well, what happened was that before I got there, some students had made a video protesting my visit and saying I wasn't a feminist. And, you know, I can't remember exactly what. Um, and, you know, I suppose that's fine. That's ex them expressing their views, although, you know, I hadn't spoken yet um, on, on campus. And the talk itself went fine. I mean, I don't it wasn't. Uh, hugely attended, and it was, I was brought there by, like, somebody who had gotten funding for a free speech institute, uh, and so, you know, I, what I found out is it is a very divided campus in that way, but I met a lot of students there who were really great and really smart and really wanted to talk about ideas and, and argue about ideas, so I wasn't prevented from speaking in any way, but after... I left, there was uh, an email circulated by a group that was a group devoted to, you know, racial and gender equity, uh, protesting my visit and, and offering themselves up as an entity that should, like, judge future speaking <laughs> invites so that students, you know, wouldn't feel like they had to sp spend their time or waste their time, uh, like, contesting the ideas of disreputable people like me. So that was, I mean, it just seems silly, this this email. But, I mean, unfortunately, there is a lot of this kind of silliness on campus, and a lot of it is from the supposed left. And it also seems like it's from people who don't have any contact with you, meaning that you were brought up on Title IX charges by people who were not your students. They were just students on the campus. And also... It didn't seem like the professors who were protesting your appearance at Wellesley attended the event and had a direct response to it. It was just the fact of your existence. Um, yes, I've become such a, a, a walking controversy. I mean, yeah, that's true. Uh, and... You know, one of the things to say about that is that as a, as a teacher, somebody who's, you know, teaching on a campus, I don't think my own students are part of this kind of momentum. So one question is how large is the sector who is, you know, in, involved in protesting speakers coming to campus? Or is it just like a very vocal, teeny, teeny minority who are attracting a lot of attention? Um, and so feminists would say and have said that a book like yours is dangerous because it offers, I guess, um, it, that it emboldens our enemies, the enemies, I guess, being sort of men, um, because it sort of allows for or reinforces this idea that women lie about rape all of the time. Yeah. Um that is the claim. I mean, part of the issue is, and I had written about this, um, 
way that I think we're sort of sentimentalizing the position of female vulnerability and, and also framing these stories in really melodramatic terms. So you've got the kind of innocent victim on the one hand and the rapacious male predator on the other, particularly predatory male professors, because I had written about the case of a professor on, on my campus who had had various kinds of involvements with students. Um, so I'm both trying to complicate those stories, like take them out of the realm of melodrama, and saying that also in some cases, not all women are using these processes, these official processes, um, whether it's sexual harassment or Title IX or whatever, in, in self-exonerating ways, ways that don't tell the full story about what happened. So I had lunch the other day with somebody who works in the, um, on the defense side in, in Title IX, somebody who works for uh, a law firm that defends students accused of Title IX, and I asked her something I get asked, like, what percentage of cases, Title IX cases, do you think are adjudicated unfairly? And, you know, thinking she would say some percent, you know, 15, 20 percent, she said 70 or 80 percent. So, of course, you know, that's the point of view of somebody who's dealing with a lot of, um, you know, un unfairness. But because of the way these things get processed, I mean, I think unfairness is the uh, norm. And the standards of proof are so low that, you know, this preponderance of evidence standard, which is like 50-50 plus a feather, the lower the standard of proof, the more likelihood of false um, guilty verdicts. So I just think there's a huge amount of this going on. And the fact that feminists or people on the left are unwilling to talk about this is kind of shameful. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the more um, bizarre cases that you came across, because I think that there's this assumption because there is such silence about the Title IX process and also what the real world ramifications of these processes are, um, that we just sort of assume that these are cases of date rape and so on, but they're much more sort of vague and um, bizarre. You talk about them in your book, but I was wondering if you could sort of. Yeah, well, the best example, and this is a case that kind of torments me because I've been in touch with the, the kid's family it was, I talk about it in the book, um, a kid, he was a freshman, 18 years old, who had a steady girlfriend, and they were, you know, having some, or he was wanting to have some sexual encounter. He asked her for oral sex, and he asked more than once, and she was a little diffident, and then she agreed. I mean, according to his story, um, and I mean, I've seen the documents in the case, and that's pretty much what both sides agree happened. But after a breakup and some other kinds of tension, she accused him of coercion in that episode. So what had happened was they, there was oral sex, you know, a blowjob for about 30 seconds, and he stopped it when he realized she wasn't into it. Um, but he didn't touch her. He didn't force her to do it. There wasn't any physical force or, or coercion. She made the decision to do it. At least that's how it looks in the in the documents. But any in any case, she brought him up on charges. Um, it went to this panel who found him guilty of 
emotional coercion. And this girl was a year older than he was. And, you know, as I say, they were in a relationship. He was not precisely expelled. In this school, they have uh, what they call um, exclusion. So the sentence was that he was excluded from campus for two years. He can reapply to get in. Um, but he doesn't want to go back to the place. And effectively, his life is ruined because they have what's called a common application. So it's one op application process for all schools, and the common app asks, have you been convicted of or accused of any kind of misconduct? Please explain. Mm -hmm. So he's gotten turned down from the next 10 schools that he applied to. The ones he's gotten into uh, are rethinking his application. He's in an incredible depression. Uh, his family, the family are beside themselves. Um, so for, you know, 30 seconds of, I think, kind of not great sexual communication between two kids who are 18 and 19, you know, here's a kid who is out of school and, uh, you know, incredibly depressed. So maybe the woman has an equally distraught story to tell about what happened. But it seems to me if, you know, looking back on I think how things, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but how things were when we were coming of age. Well, I came of age a lot earlier than you did. Okay, so when I was coming of age, back in, you know, the 19th century, I mean, you know, okay, even if you had like 30 seconds of bad sex or like, you know, 15 minutes of bad sex, you know, you kind of got over it. And the fact that people just can't get over these things now, I don't think speaks well to anybody's ability to deal with life after graduation. And plus the, the tendency to self-exoneration, you know, to accuse other people of things that you yourself participated in is just, I think, a terrible uh, turn in you know, the character of, of students these days. It always seems to me a bit like the French Revolution. Like, we're setting up these tribunals that we could be dragged in front of. And if I was ever actually made to account for my sexual misdeeds throughout my life, I would definitely be going to the guillotine. Like, there's just no way that I'm surviving that experience. Well, that's coming soon where we all, you know, yeah. are on trial. And I mean, in some ways, online culture is, uh, you know, a version of that where you can be put on trial at any moment for, you know, your, your previous sexual whatever misconduct. And I think that something that the critics of your book are missing is that the tribunals are not necessarily serving women either. It's not like this is just the side effect of ridding campus of sexual assault. You know, if, if this were a case of, well, there, you know, there a few people are, are maybe hurt in the process of sort of cleansing the area and making everything really safe for women, then we can maybe have an argument on that level. But it, for the most part, these um, Title IX tri tribunals are not making campuses safer for women. Um, and there is still a problem of how handling these cases in order to protect them and to find justice for them. Yeah, I mean, I actually did research on the assault literature and the statistics. And to whatever degree you believe all of these stats, yeah, no, nothing's getting any better. There's no less 
sexual assault, but there's also no more sexual assault than there ever was. And that's the thing that I think I found really surprising. I just assumed when I heard the one in four or one in five stats batted around all the time that there really was this vast increase in assault. And there's actually no evidence of that. There's some evidence that the numbers have gone down. I mean, it sort of depends on, on how you, you measure all this. So it's, it's bad for women. It's bad for women's independence, which is something, you know, in some old-fashioned way I always thought feminism had, you know, some con concern with, that it was about autonomy, independence, um, some kind of equity, sexual and otherwise, with, with men. The other thing you hear uh, lately is that college kids are having less and less sex. So um, compared to the good old days and, you know, 20th century when, when we were coming of age, apparently they're having, you know, they're really not doing it very much. I think everyone is either terrified or, um, you know, well, there are all sorts of ways we could speculate about the, the cause of that. Uh, I wanted to talk about the section, the, I think it's the final section in your book where you talk about how alcohol consumption, mass alcohol consumption, reinforces these gender stereotypes that in some ways college kids are drinking to mass excess in order to sort of fall back in line with gender roles. So women become incredibly vulnerable and men become very sort of predatorial. Um, predatorial is not, not a word. Can we switch that to predi predatory? <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could kind of, what was your insight into that? Uh, how did you come across that idea? I actually started talking to a lot of students, mostly my students, people that I knew pretty well because I'd had them in, in more than one class and sometimes just talking to their friends, you know, trying to get an idea from their vantage point of what it was like these days, you know, on the ground, so to speak. And I mean, you know, it turns out that's where a lot of uh, stuff was was going on, like on the, you know, people passed out on the on the bathroom floor, mostly women, because um, there's just this vast amount of binge drinking and the socializing is, you know, obviously centered around alcohol. And there's this idea, I think, that gender equity means for women, like matching guys shot for shot and, you know, or getting just really, really blasted. And mm -hmm. what that usually means is passing out first because of the the body mass problem and 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 often ending up having sex that you don't want to have so I mean I certainly think there's a vast amount of unwanted sex going on I mean whether that you want to categorize that as assault and blame someone for it is is another question but what I started to think was that rather than this being a sign of gender equity I mean it really was very traditional because, you know, alcohol does evoke like stereotypical gender extremes in behavior. So, you know, you have more, far more male aggressivity, but then the corresponding side of that is, is more female passivity. I mean, which is a quite confusing thing to say because there's some degree to which drunken women may act more assertively and more sexually assertively, but also a, the flip side is that a passed out woman is about the most passive position you can be in. You know, there's no, um, you know, assertiveness or 
choice making or um, equity possible when you're passed out on, on, the, on the bathroom floor. And the thing is, you're not supposed to say this. To talk about the relation between sexual assault and drinking is completely verboten on campus because it sounds like you're blaming the victim and you'll get accused of slut shaming. So it's, I have nothing against sluts. I'm all for <laughs> book sluts and other, <laughs> and other forms of slut dumb. We like sluts. <laughs> yes. No, really. I mean, God, I mean, I'm, you know, the last sexually censorious person on, on the planet, last and least. Uh, but what it seems to me is that you've got mostly young women absolving themselves of responsibility in these situations in ways that end up being sort of pathological, you know, end up like reinforcing tr traditional gender positions, but also just being self-destructive, you know, to, to end up putting your own safety in the hands of some drunken 20-year-old guy is a, is a dumb move. And if we can't say to these women, you know, that's a dumb move, and if we can't talk openly about how, sure, it would be really great if all the guys changed and had heightened consciousness and no longer were sexually predatory, you know, I think waiting for that day to happen, which is the sort of politically, um, I don't know, I hate to use the word correct, but, you know, approved of position now. I mean, it's it's just dumb. I do know a young woman who read your book and immediately signed up for a self-defense class because of that part of the book. Um, because we don't, for some reason, it's not a standard thing. When I was um, in my early 20s, everyone, every woman I know took a self-defense class um, because it was... It was just sort of in the air that if you're a woman, you, not that if you're a woman, you're immediately in peril, but you're definitely probably at a physical disadvantage if something does happen. And so you should know what to do in that situation. It didn't come with the language of, of victim shaming, where if you tell somebody they should take a self-defense course or if, they if you tell somebody not to get stupid drunk, then it's maybe your fault for or at least partially your fault for being put into this situation. So how did that change? I mean, I know that's part of this safe space idea that came out of the college campuses and everything, but when did that turn? Well, I'm really glad to hear that about the woman taking the self-defense class because it's the one sort of policy recommendation I make in the book, you know, is is advising that. And because I too took self-defense in, in my 20s. And part of the ethos uh, of that time and of these um, people who ran these classes was that knowing how to defend yourself also changed your way of being in the world. You know, it changed your, your sense of self, your sense of, um, uh, you know, assertiveness. That people who took the class were less likely to be assaulted um, because you carry yourself differently in the, in the world. So um, I think that one thing that's changed is that the activists on campus are more willing or desiring of turning over that kind of individual responsibility to campus administrators to, um, you know, like as we've talked about, run these tribunals after the fact. So, you know, the recourse is to these more 
carceral me methods, you know, policing methods to um, punish and, you know, kick out the supposed uh, violators as opposed to the preemptive or, um, uh, you know, educational approach, which is where I think the, the emphasis should be. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, the increase in, like, administration, the administrative layers on campus, that, it are, that is the administrators rather than professors or educators running the place. And I think these people are less interested in the possibilities of um, educating students at both sides, men and women. So there's much less focus on prevention than there is on, on punishment. And I feel like one sort of dismissal of this conversation that I keep hearing is that, you know, this is just on campus. Things are always weird on campus. Kids are always screwing things up and getting things wrong. And so we, we don't really have to take it seriously. But now you see these accusations moving beyond from beyond campus into kind of popular culture and the world where there was a band member of Power Bottom who was anonymously accused of sexual assault. And just from that one accusation, the music, the band's music was removed from Apple and they were disinvited from festivals. So we're moving into this space where this is normal and there's not an outrage. And I understand the idea of overcorrection, that things women have been disbelieved for so long. But this doesn't seem like a like a better version of the world. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to say only campus because, you know, there's something like 25 million people, you know, between students and employees and, and faculty on campus. I mean, that's, you know, like a big chunk of the population. It also infects all sorts of corporate culture, HR, you know, every place has their, their HR thing. And yeah, the accusatory tenor of, of online culture and, um, you know, look, I, it's not as though certain versions of male sexuality shouldn't be, you know, hung out to dry or, or paraded before the town square and flogged. You know, I mean, there's a lot of crappy male behavior, as as we know. So calling out some of this, you know, I don't think is is so terrible. Uh, I mean, well, I don't know. I used to think that, let's say. I mean, I used to be kind of interested in people speaking up and calling people out and, and that sort of thing. But the, the self-righteousness of it is the part that I guess bugs me. You know, the you know, back to the melodramatic framing that the women are always the the innocents and the, the men are the, the predators. You know, so you're talking about the music scene, you know, as we've seen those of us who are writers, you know, writing culture is now like beset with accusations, both of male writing professors, uh, you know, supposedly having their way with all the innocent young writing students, but, you know, visiting writers in town, like at an MFA program, you know, every little journal now has run a piece about some woman who had a one night stand with some, you know, visiting writer who took advantage of her. And I mean, it's really a genre now. So I, I, something I'm thinking of writing about, I'm going to move on from campus culture to, to writing program accusations, I think. I worry about uh, this being the stepping stone of a woman writer career. 
of this is how you sort of make your name is by these accusations and you can get paid. You're being paid by sort of these big magazines and, and you know, uh, Jezebel is owned by Univision and they will pay you to tell your story mm -hmm. about I was taken advantage of. Um, but I also worry that the fight for equality is inevitably turning into the fight to bully other people like the way that we've been bullied and to treat other people that the way that we've been treated. Uh, it doesn't seem like the conversation anymore is about, hey, how do we how do we be decent people on the on the planet and not just ruin everything the way that men did? <laughs> men asterisk, you know, all the all the sort of um, qualifiers that need to be added to that. Well, I wonder when the accused are going to start to like collectivize in some way and stand up for themselves. Um, you know, again, with the on the campus situation, you're constrained by by confidentiality, and you know, like I myself have been subject to all sorts of formal um, retaliation for speaking out about this stuff. You know, from a lawsuit to more Title IX complaints. Here, I'm I'm breaking news at this uh, on your podcast. Um, so it's you know there are. Uh, penalties for, uh, for for people doing this. But I think when people start banding together, you know, one of the things that I found out when I was getting all this mail about uh, Title IX cases from other professors is you would have people at the same institution accused by the same Title IX officer who was on some kind of rampage, and these people wouldn't know about each other. So um, when more of these stories start coming out and people start noticing the patterns, maybe there will be pushback. But we haven't gotten to the point of pushback, I think. Well, thank you so much for coming and speaking with me today, Laura. Thank you, Jessa. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogproductions.com.